Well, this morning we will uh, continue our study in the book of Ephesians, but I want to begin by throwing you a bit of a curveball and having, having you turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. And I want to have you read with me uh, one verse in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You probably wouldn't be surprised if I said to you that if a, a group of us went out in our community and we asked, why the Word of God? What, what is the, the basic thrust of the Word of God? I don't think it would surprise you to hear a majority of people say something like this. The Word of God was written to tell us everything that we're not supposed to do. But such an answer would completely miss the mark. Such an answer would completely miss the point of the Word of God. And the reason I say this is because of these words in Romans 15, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Can you remember the last time you were encouraged? I want to show you a, a picture that I, I like a great deal and this pitcher screams encouragement. Here's a coach on the sidelines with his player, giving him words of wisdom, giving him good counsel, and giving him encouragement. Can you remember the last time someone put their arm around you and said, I just want to encourage you? I think there's a real need that I want to address this morning because on a typical day, you can battle any number of crippling ailments. You may be battling discouragement. You may be battling depression. On a given day, you may struggle with, with loneliness. Your heart may be filled with anxiety. You may have wrestled with despondency. It is very possible that you are facing persecution at school or on the job right now. You might not see eye to eye with a, a family member or a friend. Perhaps you're in a, a long-standing disagreement with someone you love very much. Or you go to your physician for a routine checkup and you get a, a scary, scary diagnosis. Perhaps you're struggling with the reality that a, a friend has moved away and you might not see that friend for a very long time. Or... You have to say goodbye to a friend or a loved one at the cemetery. And all of these scenarios and a million other things begin to add up and that remind us that we are a people in desperate need of encouragement. Have you ever received a, a letter or a note in the mail? I know that's a bit of a stretch to actually receive a, a handwritten letter or note in the mail. One that just knocked your, your collective socks off. The letter or note uh, affirmed the time that you spent with a family member or a friend. The, the note thanked you for something that you accomplished, something very special. The note merely thanked you for being you. When I was installed as senior pastor at Christ Fellowship over six years ago now, 
I remember my dear friend Wayne Pickens wrote a poem for me. It's a poem that I actually had had prepared and, and I had it all ready to read to you, but just felt like there wasn't enough time this morning. But the name of the poem was In Sovereign Grace. And in essence, my, my friend Wayne thanked me for 11 years of ministry, thanked God for bringing he and I together. And I continue to, to read that poem from time to time. And every time I read that poem, it just encourages the socks off of me. Well, the Ephesian believers in the first century are no different than us in this respect. Like you and me, these were believers in desperate need of encouragement. And they were, no doubt, encouraged as they carefully read the, the opening sections of Paul's letter to them. You'll remember in chapter 1, they learned about the spiritual blessings that they had received in Christ. They learned that they were saved by grace alone through faith alone. They learned about the, the great cost that Jesus paid on the cross that enabled them to be reconciled to a holy God. This cross work that Jesus performed on their behalf that, that redeemed them from every sin they'd ever committed and every sin they would commit in the future. And these dear brothers and sisters learned as we learned last week, that they were citizens of God's kingdom, that they were members of God's household, and that they were living stones into a holy temple unto the living God. And they will continue as they read through this letter, and as we read and study through this letter, to find deep encouragement, most notably in Ephesians chapter 3, as Paul unveils what I like to refer to as the drama of the gospel here in this section. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 and stand to your feet as we read this next unit of Scripture. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have already heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages by God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and the authorities in the high places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Let's pray. 
What a great privilege it is, God, to come together as your people and to imagine what it would have been like in the first century to be numbered among the saints in Ephesus, to read this letter for the first time. And oh, what joy these men and women and boys and girls would have received by reading this letter from the hand of the Apostle Paul, who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of God. God, what a blessing we can receive now to, in a different age, in a different generation, in a different cultural context, to read these words that have been preserved all these years, all these generations knowing that there are no errors in Scripture and knowing that we can receive the same kind of encouragement that our brothers and sisters received thousands of years ago. And so we we look forward to the blessing that we receive. I pray for those who are hurting and discouraged and despondent, those in need of a a boost, some spiritual encouragement, that they would receive just that as we study uh, the Word of God this morning. We give you the praise in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Drama of the Gospel. And here's what happens is Paul, pardon the pun, sets the stage for this drama by revealing a few introductory things about himself. And you'll find this in verse 1. He begins by saying to his friends in Ephesus, I write... As an inmate, I write as a jailbird. I write as a prisoner. The year is roughly A.D. 62, and the apostle, you may remember, is imprisoned in Rome, essentially under house arrest. He had been a prisoner. He had been a, he'd been a jailbird, as we like to say, for nearly five years. Two of those years, he had been incarcerated in Caesarea, and the the last three, he had been incarcerated in Rome. And he says that he's not only a prisoner in verse 1, he says something very personal to these dear folks in Ephesus. He says, I write on your behalf, and don't miss the gravity of this, I write on behalf of the Gentiles. You see, a shift is taking place here in the first century in redemptive history where God is, is turning his attention to, from not only the Jews, but now he focuses his attention on the Gentiles. And in these verses, these Gentiles are about to see the drama of the gospel unfold and be revealed, a, a gospel that would encourage them and give them much needed perspective as they move forward in their Christian lives. Now, we have a, a large section of Scripture this morning. As I was reading through the 13 verses, I was only imagining what some of you are thinking. You think you're going to get through 13 verses? You have a hard time getting through two verses. So, by God's grace, I'm going to try my best, and we're going to see what we can accomplish. I want you to notice, in a very general way, four movements as we witness the drama of this gospel unfold. And we're going to call these Acts. We're going to see four acts that that surface in 13 verses. Here's Act 1. Act 1 is this, the mystery of the gospel. 
And Paul, as he unfolds the mystery of the gospel, he makes an assumption that the Ephesian believers have already heard about this divine word. And that's how I want to have you refer to this this morning. We're going to call this the divine word. And as we consider the divine word, I want you to see three very important aspects of this divine word. Notice first in verses 1 and 2. Paul once again says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, here's the assumption, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, the way the verb is constructed in verse 2, Paul is not guessing or merely assuming. The verb is written in such a way that he already knows that they have heard all about his life and all about his ministry and the fact that he is writing on their behalf. Notice the first thing I want you to see about this divine word. I want you to see that Paul refers to this word as a sacred trust. This divine word is a sacred trust, and the reason we know that is because he refers to it as a stewardship. A stewardship. I will, in the days ahead, from time to time, uh, be reading from another translation called the Christian Standard Bible. And that will come as a bit of a shock to many of you, because you know my great love for the English Standard Version. However, I just uh, purchased the Spurgeon Study Bible. And the Spurgeon Study Bible, um, much to my chagrin, was not written in the ESV. It was written in the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. And as as I have taken time to study this and research it and, and look at the background, I realized rather quickly that the Christian Standard Bible is the same translation philosophy and is in the same translation stream as the ESV. Well, in this... Newer translation, the Christian Standard Bible, the Greek word for stewardship is, is translated as, as administration. And so Paul would say something like this, that he assumes that you have heard of the administration of God's grace. Both words are good words. Both words are good translations, whether it's stewardship or administration. Here's what it means. It essentially means this, to manage a household. To manage a household. We understand stewardship when we give our young people the opportunity to mow a lawn, for instance. If you were to tell your teenager, uh, I would like the the lawn mode. It needs to happen before 3 o'clock on Saturday. And I want to make sure that you not only mow the lawn, I want to make sure that you, you pick the weeds out of the flower beds. I want you to fertilize it. I want you to water it. And it all needs to happen by 3 o'clock on Saturday. Well, if you come home at 3 o'clock on Saturday and you find your young person uh, watching the latest game on ESPN and you look in your yard and you realize the weeds are three feet high, the grass hasn't been mowed, and it's still brown, it has no water on it, you will have realized something very important. The stewardship agreement has been violated. This is what we refer to as not only disobedience, right, moms and dads, this is just bad stewardship. And so stewardship here means to manage a household. A stewardship, by definition, is something that is entrusted. 
Young man, young woman, I'm going to entrust you to, to mow the lawn and take care of all these other details. And it needs to happen by 3 o'clock on Saturday. Now, in this case, the stewardship that Paul refers to is this. He's not a steward over a lawn. He is a steward over the most important thing in all the world. It's the gospel message. He mentions the stewardship in his letter to the Colossian church. Let me read it for you in Colossians 1 verse 25. He says that I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. You see what Paul's doing here? He's doing something very similar to what we find in our passage in Ephesians 3. He's saying, God gave me the responsibility to be a good steward over the word of God for the benefit of the Ephesian church. And as a result, for the benefit of all believers. And so a stewardship in this case is a divine message that is given from God to Paul for the Gentiles. This indeed is a sacred trust. But there's something else I want you to see in verses 3 to 5. I want you to see that this is a sacred message. Verse 3 says this. He continues in his discussion how the, ministry, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. We'll come back to that in a moment. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The word I want you to focus on, and if you are a highlighter in your Bible, I want you to highlight the word mystery. A very important word comes from the Greek word uh, mysterion, and it means this. It means a divine secret that is now openly revealed. Some of you know that I, I dabble around in amateur magic, and I have for over 25 years. And I've been convicted, believe it or not, this is a footnote, totally off the side. I actually have working on my magic, my amateur magic, as one of my goals for 2018. You're like, you are weird, right? But it is. It's, it's something that's important that I keep up on. Well, as you know, when you do a, an amateur magic trick... What happens is it's all sleight of hand. I always have to say that for my Baptist and Presbyterian friends. It's not magic. It's sleight of hand, right? When I do this sleight of hand, especially young people, they always want to know something at the end of the trick. And you all know what it is. They all want to know, how do you do it? And the answer is, and this is my typical stock answer, I'll say something like this. What? What day is today? I said, well, it's Sunday. I said, well, I, I don't give the answer to that question on Sunday. And you know, a majority of the time people say, oh, wow, that's weird. Well, basically, I never give the answer, right? But you think about a, an amateur magic trick, a, a, a trick that, that utilizes sleight of hand. You can't give the secret away. In this case, the mystery is a divine secret that is now openly revealed. And Paul is referring to the mystery of unifying the Gentiles and the Jews, as we learned last week, into one body. How? By the power of the gospel. And he explains all of this in Ephesians 2, 13 to 22. 
Now, here's what's interesting. He says that he himself was made aware of this mystery, that which was secret in days prior in redemptive history, and now has been revealed. How does he become aware of this mystery? Do you see it there in Scripture? He says it was made known to him, in verse 3, by revelation. Now, just so you're thinking carefully, not the book of Revelation... It was made known to him by revelation. Hold your finger in Acts chapter or Ephesians chapter 3 and go with me to Acts chapter 9. And I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 9 and show you exactly what is on the mind and the heart of Paul the apostle when he says that he was made known about the mystery of the gospel by revelation. There's really only one way to cover this is to read the whole thing. And so beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, read along with me. But, but Saul, this is before he was a follower of Jesus, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked him, letters to the, asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that he may be found belonging to the way, capital way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Have you ever been in the woods and been frightened? I have. It is not fun. Here he is walking along, and he hears these words. And here's his response in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now he's really afraid. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. I want to put in my Bible, duh, right? Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, my translation says, he was without sight, neither he ate nor drank. This guy was blind for three days. Verse 10. Now there is a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. I want to write again. Yeah. And he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him and said that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed. He entered the house and laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose 
and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Additionally, Paul tells the Ephesians that the sacred message was not yet revealed to saints of old in verse 5, but is now being revealed to his holy prophets by his spirit. I think you would agree with me. Based on this revelation he has received in Acts chapter 9, this is a sacred message. Verse verse 6 tells us one more thing about this divine word. Verse 6 tells us that this is a sacred promise. He says in verse 6, this mystery, there's the word again, something that was previously hidden, now has been revealed, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now you should stop right there. If you are struggling with anything today, you should say, now that is the encouragement that I need to receive. As a Gentile, God considers me to be an heir, I have received an inheritance in Christ. He goes on. He says they are also members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. How? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. You recall the promises in Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15, where Abraham received these promises that he would be saved by grace alone through faith alone. Who was that promise for? It was for the Jewish people. Now the Gentiles, that's you and I. We learn with our Ephesian brothers and sisters that we are now heirs of this promise, heirs with Father Abraham. As I studied this passage, the thought struck me that I I am fearful that this mystery of the gospel is being largely taken for granted in the church. And when anything is taken for granted, it quickly becomes marginalized. And when something is marginalized, it is soon forgotten. And so this is my challenge for you this morning as we labor over the mystery of the gospel. My challenge for you this morning is that you would be struck by the sheer weightiness of the mystery of this gospel. That you would be humbled by by the majesty of the mystery of this gospel. That you would see the mystery of this gospel with, with fresh eyes and a tenderized heart. That when you hear the... The children learning about Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so that you wouldn't in the back of your mind be rolling your eyes. Oh, there they go again with the basic story of the gospel. And that once you are awakened by the beauty of the gospel, my prayer is that your passion would be to tell the nations. This morning in class we talked about telling people here in our own church family and ministering to them, then going out into the community and then telling the nations about the mystery of the gospel. Many of you remember my dear friend, Sergei Lukianov. I just received a a message from him on Friday. And he, who, for those of you that don't know, Sergei lives in the Republic of Belarus, former Soviet Republic. And Sergei 
through a long course of events, uh, became acquainted with a Russian Orthodox priest. Put your seatbelts on. A Russian Orthodox priest who was an atheist. I'll say it one more time. A Russian Orthodox priest who is an atheist. That is, a Russian Orthodox priest who repudiates the existence of God. And so, Sergei had asked him, Sir, have you ever heard the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that God sent Jesus Christ, he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he, he lived a life that I could never live, and he died a death that I deserved to die on the cross. And he was placed in a hole in the ground, in a tomb. And three days later, God raised him from the grave. And anyone that believes on his name would have all their sins forgiven. And he asked this Russian Orthodox priest, have you ever heard that gospel? And the response was, niet. That is, no, I've never heard that message. He's not the only one. He's not the only one. Our passion, our desire is to be involved in act number one, to dispense the mystery of this gospel. Look at act number two that begins in verse seven. We'll call this act the ministry of the gospel. Read it with me. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of this mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. As we learn about the mystery of the gospel, Acts, Act number 2 reveals three responsibilities that mark every minister of this gospel. First, I want you to see the, the responsibility that Paul has to be a servant. The responsibility that he has to be a servant. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made, here's the important word, a minister. A minister. This comes from the Greek word. See if you know the English word we get from this. Diakonos. How many diakonoses do we have here at Christ Fellowship? Kyle? Kyle's a diakonos. Where are the other deacons? Do we have any other deacons here today? Mr. Hansen? Dave? Ah, Aaron? These are our deacons. What does a deacon do? A deacon serves. A deacon attends to the needs of others. It's interesting in the Christian Standard Bible, the, the word is translated as servant. Servant or minister are both good translations of this Greek word. And one of the outstanding qualities of a diakonos, and that is the case with all of the deacons that serve here at Christ Fellowship, is that they are faithful. Paul refers to a few of his friends, one in Colossians chapter 1. He talks about his friend Epaphras. He says that just as you have learned about him, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister. He is a faithful diakonos of Christ on your behalf. And then he refers to his friend uh, Titius, who I will tell about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister, diakonos, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Paul's first divine responsibility as he unfolds this second act, the, the ministry of the gospel, is that he is a servant or a minister. Notice in verse 8, he also says he has the responsibility to be a publisher. You say, what? Like a publisher? Like a book publisher? No. 
a gospel publisher. The word he uses in verse 8 is this. He says, I am called to preach to the Gentiles. The Greek word is euangelizo. Euangelizo. If, if you consider yourself an evangelical, if you're a Christian, you're an evangelical. Why? It comes from euangelizo. It means to preach the gospel of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. It means someone who, who publishes the good news. Many of you know that I love books. I love to read. I am in contact throughout the week with publishers. But the greatest publisher ever is the one who delivers the message of the good news. It's the one who publishes the good news. What does it involve? It involves faithful preaching. In Acts 5, we read this. And every day in the temple from house to house, the apostles did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. We looked at this verse in class this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says, I charge you to the young pastor Timothy in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the, to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. I remember back to my seminary days, and I learned... Uh, a, a whole series of lessons and principles and skills and, and learn the languages and all the rest. But if there's anything I would say that I learned at Multnomah Biblical Seminary is this. It's the emphasis was on preach the word. Preach the word. Paul says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, rebuke exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so if you read the rest of the section, we would learn this, that we don't preach to tickle ears. We don't preach to entertain. Can I say that one more time to all of America? We do not preach to entertain. We do not preach to tickle ears. We preach so that the nations would be satisfied with Jesus. We preach the gospel. This preaching involves Eager preaching. Romans 1.15, Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It involves preaching that is filled with, with gravitas and, and conviction. Paul says in Galatians 1, as I have said before, I will say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be anathema. This is bold preaching, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, where he says, Pray for me that my words may be given to me and in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then here in Ephesians 3, 8, we see that this preaching magnifies the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He refers to it as the unsearchable riches of Christ. What do we learn about the divine responsibilities? Paul says that he's a servant. He says he's a publisher. And finally, in verse 9, he says that he is a torchbearer. He is a torchbearer. Verse 9 says he is called to bring the light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? That phrase, bring the light, means to cause to know. It means shining the light so that the nations would see something visibly clear. You remember Jesus in John 8 says, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's what Paul says. He says his job is to bear witness to that light and to reveal the mystery of the gospel and the God who created all things. Or as John MacArthur writes, Paul's mission was to bring to light or reveal the full expression of the operation of this great truth of Gentile and Jews being one, being unified, a truth hidden for so long in the mind of God the Creator. You see, these Ephesian believers, they heard it first. They heard this news story. They heard this revelation that now the Jewish people and the Gentile people were one. And so Paul clearly unpacks the divine responsibilities before him as he unfolds the ministry of the gospel. But here's the point for you and I. The the ministry of the gospel is not exclusive to the Apostle Paul. Did you know that every Christ follower has a set of responsibilities as well? One of the things that I do when I travel on a plane is that it's not unusual, especially if I'm by myself. If I'm by myself on a plane, it's not unusual where I'll meet someone and they'll ask me, what do you do for a living? And that's, that's, that's always an enjoyable experience for me. I, when I was a young pastor, I used to say, I'm a youth pastor. And then the discussion would usually go south from there, right? Well, I, I've gotten a little bit more wise. So instead of saying just right out of the chute, I'm a pastor, There's all kinds of other things that I can say as well that would be totally accurate and and honest. I could say I'm a teacher. I could say I'm a professor. I could say I'm I'm a counselor. One of my favorite ones, I could say I'm a shepherd. But I think my favorite one, because I do like to cook, I like to say I'm a chef. Really? What restaurant do you work at? Christ Fellowship. You're a chef? That must be quite a church. Yeah, I prepare a meal each week for the people of God. Well, the word that captures what I do in the most intense way is, is the word diakonos. Diakonos. A, a diakonos is a minister. And did you know that each of you are ministers as well? It's not just the deacons who have the, the office of deacon here at Christ Fellowship. Every boy and every girl and every man and every woman in this sense is a diakonos, is a minister. You are called, if you are a Christian, you are called to serve people. You are called to, to publish the good news. And here's the response I hear, but you don't understand. I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. You don't understand. I'm not, I'm not a public speaker. Yes, you are. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you stand up and, and, and stand behind a wooden pulpit But as you enter the classroom, as you enter the marketplace of ideas, as you are in your office, as you are are going about your daily responsibilities, you are called to be a preacher. You are called to be a publisher, to publish the good news. You are also called, like Paul, to be a torchbearer and to share the gospel with people as God gives you the opportunity. And so I would ask you this morning, where is the gospel of grace taking root in your life today? How are you in your sphere of influence? Some of you have rather small spheres of influence. Some of you have magnanimous spheres of influence. They're all important. How are you making a difference with the gospel to God's glory? This is the act two, the ministry of the gospel. 
There's a third act that emerges in verses 10 and 11. It's what we refer to as the motive of the gospel, the motivation of the gospel. And in this, this act, we, we learn very quickly the purpose or the motivation behind Paul's efforts. It's what I like to call the divine motive. Look at the divine motive beginning in verse 10. Whenever you see the little words, so that... Generally, that comes from a Greek word that is called a purpose clause. And the purpose clause says, this is the reason for all that we have talked about thus far. So that through the church, would you do this with me? Would you say this with me on three, through the church? One, two, three, through the church. Let's do it again. One, two, three, through the church. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Here is the divine motive. It is to reveal the the multifaceted, the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The word manifold means many-sided. It means many-sided. That is, the wisdom of God is, is multifaceted. The wisdom of God is revealed in His plan to save sinners in eternity past. The wisdom of God is revealed in the Garden of Eden where God unveils His plan to send a deliverer to make atonement for sinners, Genesis 3.15. The wisdom of God is revealed when Jesus was born of a virgin. And the wisdom of God is revealed when Jesus dies on a cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. It is through, then, the church that this wisdom is displayed. One writer says it like this. God has brought the church into being for the purpose of manifesting his great wisdom before the angels, both holy and unholy. And he says it clearly there. We are to make this manifold wisdom known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Here are three grand facts about the church. First, the church of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to history. The church of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to history. Second, the church is central to the gospel. And third, the church is central to Christian living. I want to say something that will sound very similar to something I mentioned in Veritas this morning. I said I wanted to make a dogmatic statement, and I'll make it again, that the church is at the center of God's plans for redemptive history. Yet here is what I hear. I go in the woods to worship God. I go out onto the bay to worship God. I worship the, the, the God of the universe while I'm hiking. Now, there is no disputing the fact that you can worship God in the woods. There is no disputing the fact that you can go out onto the bay and worship God on the bay. There's no disputing the fact that you can travel up to Alaska and see the beautiful creation God has made and worship God. But listen, the church of Jesus Christ is at the center of God's plans for redemptive history. Anyone who discounts the ministry of the local church is sorely mistaken. 
If you believe that you can, you can marginalize the church, you can walk away from the church, that you don't need the church, that you'll do it on your own, you are setting yourself up for spiritual and practical disaster. Paul says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he was realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Finally, the act number four. Notice with me the might of the gospel. The might of the gospel, which we'll look at in verses 12 and 13. He continues, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I call this divine privileges. And there are only two that are listed. But suffice it to say, when you place your faith in Christ, a treasure chest of spiritual riches becomes available to you. You remember that in Old Testament Israel, a person was very limited in what he or she could pursue when it came to God. Let me put it this way. And I ask this in Veritas. How often could a person enter the presence of the Lord? One time. And that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That was only once a year. Now, now that the gospel has come in all its fullness, we have the divine privilege where we may enter boldly into the presence of God. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Paul also says that we receive encouragement in the midst of suffering. This is divine perspective, is it not? Paul says in verse 13, so I ask you, To not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. And so as we bring all this together this morning and conclude, I want you to remember the truth point that we, as the followers of Christ, bear witness to the drama of the gospel. Act 1, the mystery of the gospel. Act 2, the ministry of the gospel. Act 3, the motive of the gospel. Act 4, the might of the gospel. Have you ever gone to a play or a drama or watched a great movie and you get to the end, it's the final scene? We just watched the last scene of The Hobbit last night. You get to the last scene, it's like, da-da! Da! Right? And what do you want to do? You want to go out and tell someone about it. Right? Isn't it like that in the Christian life? It is the drama of the gospel. And that drama reminds us to maintain a God-centered perspective. Which is why Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. And so I want to leave you with five very practical points of application. Number one, when we suffer, when we suffer, and that would include an awful lot of us, When we suffer, we remind ourselves of the gospel. The Apostle Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Secondly, when we feel weak, we remind ourselves of the gospel. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, My grace is sufficient for you. 
My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Third, when we are overwhelmed. Have you ever been there? You're overwhelmed by, the, by the, your daily responsibilities. You're overwhelmed by the, the news you receive on the telephone. You're overwhelmed by the myriad of emails that you receive. You're overwhelmed by what your doctor tells you. When we are overwhelmed, we remind ourselves of the gospel. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Number four, and it's related to number three, when life seems to spin out of control, we remind ourselves of the gospel. For we know that for those who love God... God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And finally, when we are discouraged, when we are discouraged, we remind ourselves of the gospel. And I would remind you of the the opening verse that we looked at together in Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in our former days, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I trust that you have that hope this morning. I trust that your worldview is a, is a God-centered, Christ-saturated worldview. And as you, as you leave the sanctuary today, that you will be filled with, with joy and hope because of all that Jesus Christ is for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great drama, the drama of the gospel. Thank you for Paul, who has uh, clearly articulated the beauty of it and all the attending elements of it. Father, I pray for each person in the sanctuary on this day that they would be filled with, with joy, that they would be filled with hope because of all that Christ is for them. God, we recognize that there is nothing that we can do to earn your favor. We know that without Jesus, we can do nothing. And so would you remind us of the gospel, remind us of the hope, remind us of its power, remind us that we are forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. And would this give us fresh resolve to move into this week intending to to make a difference for the gospel here in Whatcom County. God, I pray that you would move hands and, and feet to make a difference here in Whatcom County, that you would open mouths to to preach the word of God, be it in a school, be it in an office complex, be it in a park. God, I pray that many people this week would would hear the mighty gospel from the good folks at Christ Fellowship. So remind us throughout this week, of the power and the drama of the gospel that is ours all because of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Just
humbled himself and carried the cross. 